This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Listen to the new Thin Green Line podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Game wardens John Norris and Wayne Saunders talk about wildlife, the outdoors, law enforcement, environmental subjects mixed with current events and guests that are part of the Thin Green Line. And if you are one of those visual people like me, for $5 a month, you can see the actual podcast on Patreon.com. Just search the Thin Green Line podcast on Patreon.com and join us. The Copper Pig Brewery in Lancaster, New Hampshire, is brewing traditional and innovative high-quality beers, as well as serving a large menu of creative comfort foods appealing to all walks of life, with daily specials sourcing many ingredients locally. Charitable involvement and support of their community is the cornerstone to the Copper Pig Brewery's mission. Voted number one in New Hampshire by WMUR Viewer's Choice two years in a row, 2018 and 2019. Please join me at the Copper Pig. We love our children. We protect them. We guide them. We prepare them for life in the world. With all that we do, from deep in our hearts, we cannot control all things. Life-threatening illnesses and disabilities affect far too many of our children each year. While we cannot change the circumstance, we can make dreams come true. Dreams to provide hope, to provide spiritual healing and strength, to provide moments of happiness and relief in the hardest of times. We can give a glimmer of light and hope in a time of darkness and despair. Join HuntOfALifetime.org to help make dreams come true, to provide hope for children with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Hunt of a Lifetime is a nonprofit organization fulfilling dreams for hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Visit HuntOfALifetime.org to learn how you can make a difference. This podcast is brought to you by Maine Operation Game Thief and Wildlife Heritage, a foundation of New Hampshire at nhwildlifeheritage.org and International Wildlife Crime Stoppers. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves Game Wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. Episode 43, Dennis Amsden, Vermont, Game Warden. And I got to start off with an apology right away. Our last podcast, we were going to have John Norris uh, talk about a pretty in-depth case that California ran 
But unfortunately, when we had things scheduled, John uh, got called back to duty, so to speak. Uh, the fires in California are uh, devastating the area that he was very familiar with. They reached out to him for logistics uh, to help fight the fires. So he uh, dropped everything he was doing, including our podcast, because your priorities are priorities still. When you're called, you're called. And uh, when you can lend a hand, you lend a hand. And John's still doing that. And he was helping with logistics back in California to fight these uh, horrific forest fires. And he will be talking about that our next podcast. So we're putting off the case that John had done in California. And we will talk about that the next podcast. So we moved up Dennis Amstead to the number 43 spot here at Warden's Watch. Dennis, Vermont Game Warden, had quite a few stories. Um, as usual, I know you're going to enjoy this one. So thank you. So this podcast is with Dennis Amstead up the Vermont Fish and Wildlife it's Vermont Fish and Wildlife, right, Dennis? Because I sometimes uh, I trip over that because it'll be a little off from what I'm used to or something, and you guys are definitely Fish and Wildlife, right? We are the Vermont Fish and Wildlife Department, and uh, more recently, the uh, law enforcement division is the uh, Vermont Warden Service. Oh, see? And I didn't I didn't realize that. And uh, that's a pretty cool thing because the Maine has the Maine Warden Service. So maybe that's a trend. I, I, I like that. I always liked it that Maine was kind of separated out from that as the warden service. And now that you guys are, that's pretty neat. And Pennsylvania just went back to the term of game wardens. After they did, like, uh, they actually did interviews and got information and asked people about the name and how they were related. And they found out mm-hmm. that most people understood what a game warden was and that's why they went back to the game warden rather than game protector or game this, that, and the other thing. So that's, it certainly has branded us. I'm glad we're going back to the branding that we had around the turn of the century because it seems like, you know, things ebb and, ebb and turn, but that that's term is stuck with us no matter what our title was before, don't you think? Yeah, I think so. And uh, I think uh, I have seen game wardens or conservation officers or environmental police all over the country typically refer to themselves uh, amongst themselves as game wardens. Uh, and I think the public in some states also just have a tendency to uh, default to game warden. And if you're connected to the outdoors, you generally know what a game warden is, no matter what the official title is, whether it's environmental police, you know, they can say that's the game warden. Um, that's, it's just pretty interesting. And I, I like to look at branding because being involved with Operation Game Thief and things like that, I often think that, you know, Operation Game Thief is probably an old term that should be turned into wildlife crime stoppers with the state after it. And I kind of preach that. And it's just because of the branding and that people aren't connecting to Operation Game Thief. I had a friend in Arizona that was involved with Operation Game Thief. And he actually did a little survey on his own when he went to these schools to talk about Operation Game Thief. He asked the kids what they thought Operation Game Thief was. And what do you think they said? Game wardens. No, they they thought someone was going to steal their <laughs> video games. <laughs> oh, of course, of course. I'm giving a little credit. Yeah, no, no, that's that's understandable. But uh, no, they thought that Operation Game Thief was uh, something about stealing their games, and that's how they're connected right now. So unless you are connected to the outdoors, you don't understand that branding. So I always people hear me say that all the time because I think things should be changing gravity but you, you know how much it takes to change all your branding and stuff it's it's astronomical when you come into dollars and cents when an agency wants to rebrand instead of being the fish and game department fish and wildlife department we just we did a cost estimate way back when we were thinking about that and it, it, it takes a hit on an agency that's usually generally strapped for money yeah especially in these times mm, exactly yeah we're gonna see some definitely some strapping as far as uh, money goes and innovations go unfortunately we're gonna have to stick to the basics it's kind of neat to talk to you today dennis because you turned in your equipment today after a 20 year career as a game warden yeah yeah a bitter a bittersweet moment for sure Mm. Um, uh, i was asked uh, what it feels like now to have the equipment turned in i'm not officially retired until saturday it's a little bit like a uh it's it's definitely bittersweet it's sad 
but it is happy and exciting. Uh, looking forward to the next phase in life. It's a, like a little bit of a weight is lifted off my shoulders. I've been using up some leaves, so I haven't had the responsibilities that, that I've had over the last uh, month or two, but uh, it's, it's definitely uh, changing. It, it's, it's a weird feeling to not be a game warden. It's such it's so much more of a lifestyle than a job. Yeah, and once a game warden, always a game warden, Dennis. I'm sorry. <laughs> or like the Marines. <laughs> it's it's going to take some adjustment. Oh, when you say that weight lifted, I totally understand that responsibility that goes day in and day out. And especially as you climb the ladder and end up as a lieutenant where your responsibilities gain that much more and you think more about your guys, you think more about your missions, you think more about the general public and, and their well-being. Yeah, it, it's definitely, it's a weight, it weighs heavy. It's a big responsibility, especially being a supervisor. Yeah, so it's, it's, it is a weight lifted off you. So, and, and thank you so much uh, for, for, for your service, for what you did. It's just... Uh, it's it's a job, and we had a, a game warden who's Pat since he, he, his quote is, if, if God knew what a good what a good job being a game warden would be, he would have kept it for himself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I've been blessed. It's uh, uh, very very fortunate to have had the career and had the opportunity. So, uh, you know, and it's it's really due to other game wardens and and family and uh, the public. They're they're all the ones that really. Uh, contribute to a successful game warden career. Couldn't have said it better. Let's go back to the beginning, Dennis. I mean, did you grow up? Did you have a mentor? Did you? What, what gave you the connection? What gave you the desire to, to do what you did? You know, I, I grew up in a family that wasn't a, uh, a huge sporting family. I had an older brother who was a pretty avid fly fisherman, but my parents were a lot older. Uh, my mother was 48. And my dad was almost 52 when I was born. And they had had four kids and, and were done with that. <laughs> and uh, 17 years after the last one, my mother uh, uh, had me. So I was, a, I was a pretty big surprise. But my parents, again, they were quite a bit older. So my brothers and sisters were a little bit more like aunts and uncles uh, in our relationships. And uh, my dad and uh, my mom's family, they all uh, they hunted and fished in the early days, but it didn't have much to do with recreation or sporting. And that's, that's how they fed themselves. Mm. Uh, my mother's family were Italian in- immigrants and, uh, her brothers, uh, did a lot of coon hunting, uh, down in the Bethel area seasons and bag limits never really came into play for them. They, they not only sold the, the hides, but they, they ate them as well. The first I ever heard of a game one was from my mother. Apparently one had shown up at her her home when she was a kid questioning her brothers about some uh, reports he had had about people coon hunting in the summer. And of course they didn't know anything about it. And when he left, they all started laughing and her dad asked what was so funny. They used to soak their, their coon meat in um, water in uh, milk cans, the old milk cans, and they would hang them in the rafters of the porch. And apparently if the game warden, this was common. So anybody that saw that would know what it was. And if the game warden had just looked up, he would have seen the milk cans hanging above his head when he was uh, questioning them. But uh, it, w- it was really my mother that was very adamant about uh, fish and wildlife laws. And if I were to hunt or fish, that I need to follow those laws. And at a pretty young age, she got me a uh, subscription to Outdoor Life. And between that and seeing my, my neighbor's dad bringing deer home when he was deer hunting, it just got me hooked on the outdoors. Mm. So you, you started off hunting and fishing at a young age, experimenting with that? or uh, I, I did uh, as much as I could. My bro- I had a brother who was a mentor for fishing, but for hunting, I didn't. it was a little more trial and error. And um, uh, I thought I wanted to be a game warden then when I heard about the job. And then somebody told me that game wardens can't hunt and fish. And that was kind of a common uh, myth. Uh, at one time. And once I heard that, I was, I gave up the idea of being a game warden. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I was 31 years old, well, thir- 30, 29 or 30 before I became a deputy and 31 before I, I became a full-time warden. So you got kind of a later start for sure. Just all that, that fear. And I always tell people that say that, I said, you know what, you're, you're right. We don't hunt and fish as much as the other people do, but we always know where to go and hunt and fish. Because that's what we're supposed to know. 
We're supposed to know where the game is. We're supposed to know where the fish is. So we can uh, pretty much put ourselves in the right place at the right time, giving that we have less time to do it. Although I will say I never got up early because I was always trying to recharge my batteries. So I, I wasn't the get out at the crack of dawn game warden. I was, you know, sleeping and catch a little sleep while you can and then start hunting around nine. So <laughs> and hunt into the well, later. We do have the even. luxury of we, we have the luxury of scouting while we're at work. So we, that helps us zero in a little bit. Yep, and that that's part of the job is knowing because uh, let's face it, if there's deer there, there's hunters. If there's game there, there's hunters, and so we we can just hone our locations when we do that. So, yeah, we may not do as much as the average guy, but I, I think we do it more effectively because of our knowledge just gained through the day in and day out of the job. That's that's pretty interesting. And uh, I, I, I did, did your mother, because of the way she grew up, want to make sure you were doing things right? I mean, uh, all the coon meat hanging. Uh, and we're talking these big milk cans back. They used to milk cows in, and now, you, now they're antiques. Uh, you know, I don't know if everybody needs to have yeah, seen Yeah, now they, they make uh stools and benches on yeah exactly uh, there's no more milk cans but they were hanging up there i'm assuming to stay cool on the porch yeah i think soaking the uh water had something to do with trying to get the gaminess out of the out of the coon meat ah interesting so you've had coon meat before i have but not through my family that was at a game supper (laughs) (laughs) so you started in your 30s uh Vermont was always the, the place you wanted to go, the place you wanted to be. Well, I'm a sixth generation Vermonter. When my wife, my wife likes to remind me that when we met, I told her that uh, I would always live here. And now, of course, we're we're looking at moving to Dixie as soon as uh, our house sells and the retirement uh, is official. But um, we, we've had enough of the winters. Yeah, Vermont is always. Uh, where I've always lived with, with the exception of uh, some stints in the military here and there. So you were a previous military. I was, uh, I had 12 years in, in reserve components and, and worked in the medical field prior to uh, getting into law enforcement a couple of years and uh, for a couple of years before being a game warden. Did that experience help you a maybe become a game warden and, and throughout your career? Is that military experience? Yeah, I think the military experience was helpful. I think law enforcement was even more helpful. I was 29 when I first got into law enforcement. I didn't really have any interest in it, but the, my local game warden was someone that I knew well. I did a lot of nuisance trapping and he would send me business. He encouraged me to become a deputy for him, which I didn't, at the time, I didn't really know if I wanted to do, but uh, I was felt indebted to him. He had, he had treated me very well. And it was kind of like joining the, the volunteer fire department or the rescue squad. So I, I agreed to do it. And then uh, I was over at a friend's house uh, skinning some beavers. A buddy of his was a sergeant on the police department. And I, I mentioned to him that I was going to be a deputy game warden. And the sergeant said, well, that's great because we could use part-time officers. Why don't you come work with us part-time? And I, I, I <laughs> remember very clearly telling him, you know, Gee, thanks. That that's great, but I honestly I don't really have any interest in law enforcement. I just want to help out my local warden. He convinced me to do a ride along, and once I did the ride along, uh, it's you know it's a town police department. I was hooked, and and I just said, where do I sign up? Wondered how I had missed it, but I don't think I would have been mature enough ten years earlier to do the job. I think it, it took took a little bit of uh, life experience to be ready for it. No, I think that's uh, really important. You can bring a lot of life experience, especially when you start off former military, former police officer. And that's how I usually tell kids that want to get into this. I mean, if you come right out of college, you can't find yourself a game warden job. Get something that will boost yourself to to be at the head of the pack, so to speak. You know, whether it's being a local police officer, whether it's being a Marine patrol officer, whether it's uh, going into the military, because a lot of the requirements are former police, former military or, you know, two years of college or up to four years of college to be a game warden. So to, to bring all those life skills to it, and I think you hit the nail on the head, maturity is really important. And I remember when I came on, they liked to hire guys 25 or older because of the maturity level. But now I think we're just looking for, you know, decent candidates. I, I think that's, that's gone out of the window. We don't have the luxury of, of waiting for that maturity on a lot of cases that just... And I think that sometimes hurts us because, uh, 
you know, as young game wardens, you remember, I mean, even at 30, you know, you must, have you changed from your, when you first started to now, as far as, you know, being a game warden? Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, I would, I would get myself into trouble over my own enthusiasm. Uh, (laughs) I totally understand. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I had one of my first supervisor told me that, uh, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's fun to go out and make cases, but you got to spend a little time actually writing them up, uh, (laughs) before, before you go out and make too many, you know, and of course in the fall, you know, your, your, your cases are literally piling up on, on your desk until, until they're a foot high. And, uh, but it's a lot more fun to go out and make the case than it is to write it all up and yeah. put it together. And I hope Glenn Lucas listens to this podcast too. <laughs> and I think we all, We've all been there, all been there and, and gone through that same thing. Cause yeah. And, and I used to have a saying, I worked with uh, Colonel Jordan a lot and I'd catch him. He'd clean him cause he was our prosecutor. So he did a lot <laughs> of my prosecuting and it, he did a good job. So, but that was always my thing. I'd catch him, you clean him. So, <laughs> so well, I got a, nobody becomes a game warden to uh, to do paperwork. Oh no, you are you are absolutely right. That's the one thing we don't talk about a lot on the Warden's Watch podcast is all the time and effort that we put into to, to the paperwork. But I will say the game wardens are very detail orientated, and when a case goes to court, I, I always got comments on the quality of the case, the details of the case, and uh, we just we just take it so seriously. You know, wildlife crime. I, I think it's 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 part of who we are and how we take it seriously, and then to present it to the general public, to present it to a court, is so important for us, don't you think? Yeah, I think atten- attention to detail is is uh, one of the most important aspects of, of doing the job successfully, and and uh, uh, it doesn't take much or, or more than one time for a defense attorney to pick apart a case or to uh, find something that you could have done better to really hammer that lesson home and we hate losing <laughs> we don't like to lose don't like to lose so uh, always in the same patrol area generally through your whole career yeah i was i was in the st greater st johnsbury area uh with the exception i was going to transfer once uh didn't seem to have much luck finding housing so i just stayed here right up until uh a little over a couple of years ago and you you came up to the ranks. I know you're retiring as a lieutenant, correct? I did. I was promoted uh, from the field. It was really the the only promotion, other than kind of our, our automatic promotions that we get to like senior warden after uh, six years on. You know, I, I enjoyed being in the field, e- even as a lieutenant. Uh, I think most lieutenants would say they they miss it. Uh, tried to get out there as much as I could. Uh, certainly not as much as I would have liked, though. Uh, more so in the fall, but it, it, it was uh, it was a lot of fun becoming a lieutenant too because you have a, a completely different view of, of what's going on and you have this bird's eye view of, of warden work that you only saw in, in a different way from the field. You know, you talk to neighboring wardens and you hear about stories, but as a supervisor, you get to see all the work. That's a real treat mm. um, because wardens, they work hard. And they want to make cases, and then mm. you, you get to see it all. Yeah. So uh, if, if you like good warden work, it it can be a lot of fun being a supervisor. Yeah, and I always found I got into the, some of the best cases because, yeah, if they needed help, I was always handy to help and go up and do that. So I was very into being working on those cases, and you could move around to different officers as they're doing different things. And it seemed like you got a lot more action, you know, not just your action, you had everybody else's action. And it, it was kind of fun. And uh, working with, you know, doing search warrants and stuff like that, it was just, uh, it was kind of neat. I, I enjoyed being lieutenant as well. One of the first memorable cases you have? Probably the first one involved a longtime poacher. Uh, who had been in the district before I got here. I didn't know much about him. I got a report that he was keeping a fawn. It was in July, uh, right about this time of year, mid-July. And I got a report that he was keeping a a fawn in a swimming pool. And he hadn't been on my radar because I I was pretty new. I'm assuming Uh, the swimming pool was empty. It was. It was just the... uh, the metal wall without a liner and above ground <laughs> pool. It did have a tree planted in there for shade, but uh, uh, that led to a search warrant at the house. Uh, on the search warrant, we requested uh, photos and video because the complainant 
said that he had uh, pictures and video of this fawn as well as other fish and wildlife offenses. But we could, we could the fawn was the nexus for the, the video evidence. So we went in and we did the search warrant. The fawn wasn't there, but it was, there was obviously a fawn spending time there. We seized a, a great deal of, at that time, that was back around 2003, video tape evidence, compact videotape evidence. And uh, once we started looking at them that afternoon, we just realized that we had hit a treasure trove of poaching. And uh, it took about a month uh, of reviewing uh, video. Uh, Dave Gregory, uh, who of course you know, was a huge part of this case as well. The challenges were figuring out if the video was credible because all his video had time and date stamps. And of course, many of us with our mm. cameras when we first had them, the time and date stamps, most of us never worried about that. Never changed. This guy was, was meticulous. Mm. And, but we had to show that it was correct. So mixed in with all the video were family events like birthdays, uh, car accidents he had driven through holidays. Uh, sometimes he would pan across the, uh, a clock in the kitchen. So we had to document all of that to show that these time and date stamps were credible because if we were going to prove a crime, we had to prove where it happened and when it happened. Mm. Uh, many of the crimes went back well beyond the statute of limitations. After a, a month of reviewing and documenting, we were able to show that there was, we were able to charge him with, I believe it was 16 counts that were still within the statute of limitations. And it was every kind of wildlife crime you can imagine. It was shooting bears over bait, deer, waterfowl, possessing live wild animals, trapping out of season. Uh, and almost all of it involved children. Uh, this guy took his kids and involved them. Uh, you know, his five or six-year-old son was shot a grouse in the backyard in the month of May. And it, it, was, it was very involved. He ended up pleading out to the case we seized and forfeited a, a great deal of taxidermy. Uh, we ended up doing um, six, six, eight, six, and then an additional warrant all at once. Uh, so we had wardens come in from all over the state and uh, with uh, about a half a dozen different defendants that were on the videotapes. It was for a young warden. It was a pretty big case. I mean, it'd be a big case for, for me now. It, yeah. it, took, it took a lot of effort, but I had really good experienced wardens around me that were, uh, guiding me through the process. This guy ended up being uh, uh, coming back. We ended up seeing him again in 2010. And again, uh, the fall before I was promoted, he and his sons uh, shot my decoy at night. But, uh, so I, I don't know what the next warden will have in store with, with him. We said that he has the K chromosome for killing because it, none of it seems to be about hunting. He has a big meat pole that he hangs right out in front of right by the road and whatever gets killed hangs there. Uh, it might be a fox hanging until it rots, but yeah. So that, that was my big case. And, and to start out and probably my most memorable uh, at the time. Yeah. Cause that takes a lot of coordination when you're bringing all those wardens in, you know, executing those warrants, different people going different places, different officers, yeah, that's a, that's a pretty intense. And you know what I like that you brought up is the experienced warding, wardens helping you with the warrants and everything like that. Because that's something we got to pass on. we gotta, we got to teach them how to do that, walk them through that so they can do the next generation. You know, as, as you know, I hate to say it, you retiring at 20 years, uh, I hope you passed on as much as you could because, geez, some of those guys that I, that I had had 30 years on that were passing that stuff on to me. And I think we're seeing uh, younger retirements from a lot of uh, officers. That I'm just hoping that we're, we're keeping that and passing it on, teaching those guys how to go about it, how to do it, because it's been very successful, as well as changing up things. Because I love new guys. I love when I bring a, I bring a new guy in. I kind of like to see what he can do because he looks at things differently than I do. And I've seen a lot of younger officers, probably like yourself, the Fawn case, look at it in a different way and be successful with guys I haven't caught in a very long time because they went at it a different way. And I, I just I find that fascinating that, you know, hey, you got a, a, a call for a Fawn and you just didn't walk over to the guy's house and say, hey, I heard you got a Fawn. 
no, you, you did your research, you did, you know, you, you did all that, you did all the basics, you got the warrant, and it just led you to so much more. And that's so important for young game wardens to learn, not to get the quick thing, but to maybe look at the overall case and, and what can be harvested out of, a, you know, a simple search warrant. Because uh, every search warrant we do, man, we uncover drugs, we uncover felons in possession, we undercover, you know, it's just amazing when you go into somebody's house looking for pictures and looking for other things, what you uncover. I always incorporated local and state police because of those types of things that generally you found looking for wildlife or evidence of a crime in wildlife. And they just overlap, don't you think, Dennis? Oh, absolutely. It used to be that it was very rare that we did a search warrant and didn't find drugs. Uh, Mm. It seems like that became a little less so, and maybe it was the demographic of the poacher has changed a little bit over time. Um, I had one case in Waterford, which is, of course, borders New Hampshire, where a father and son and and a friend shot my decoy at night and then ended up, uh, we ended up in a pursuit into New Hampshire. And Greg Jellison, I I think was, as I recall, was the first first, uh, warden conservation officer there. And that led to a search warrant back at the house the next the next night and uh, where we got five and a half pounds of processed marijuana. Mm. And uh, of course, the guy said, well, that's not my my marijuana. And I said, well, sure, it's not your marijuana. <laughs> you know, hear that all the time. He says, no, it really, it really isn't my marijuana. And it uh, belongs to so and so. And we got the drug task force and the state police involved, set up kind of a sting operation for him to call we got a wire warrant. He called his friend and said, hey, my sister-in-law found found your marijuana and uh, you need to come get it because she said she's going to call the cops if you don't get it out of here. So we had to bring the, the marijuana, which was in a, it was in a garbage bag. It was a fairly large bag and we had to bring it in for for the, the pickup, so to speak. And, <laughs> and uh, we were pretty excited because wardens don't, don't do a lot of this. <laughs> but we got there and my job was to bring the marijuana and I had ridden with a different warden and we got to the house, the call was made, and they said, okay, get the marijuana, put it in the old junk vehicle. And I said, uh-oh, <laughs> I forgot the marijuana it's back in the other truck down in town. And the call had been made. The guy lived about three minutes away. Three of us, Dave Gregory and, and I and another warden, uh, were on our hands and knees pulling up grass from the field and, and shoving it in, in a uh, garbage bag to try to – Try to get about five pounds worth and tie it up in a big knot. So this guy, all we needed him to do was grab the bag. Came and grabbed the bag, and we jumped on him, and it was a lot of fun. Yeah, <laughs> out of the out of the ordinary for us, but I almost blew that one. Yeah, and you improvised. That's that's great. You you, you <laughs> got to fill this bag with something. So let's start pulling grass. We got about three minutes to do it. Yeah, no no pucker yeah, factor we, we there, just Dennis. Got it in the truck. <laughs> yeah, we just got it in there and, and he pulled in the driveway oh man i'll tell you uh, that's great that's one of those last minute stories where it could have gone either way well but uh good good thinking on your guys part to Im- Im- improvise and uh yeah I, I tried not to tell those stories of things like uh yeah i left a decoy out once overnight uh i had to go back and get it the next day <laughs> it was time to run it again and the lieutenant and had the whole thing planned and i went out to get the decoy it wasn't there and yeah it was a late night and i had put it I put it down and uh guess what i drove away with it and never even thought about it because I, I put it down so it was it was in the woods hidden but i i just i, I don't know what it was three in the morning and i was tired i went home i crashed and uh yeah, I left a decoy in the woods. And then the pucker factor, when you go back out to your cruiser and you look and you think that decoy's there and it's not, and then you're like, <laughs> okay, now where would that be? And I'm like, are you kidding me? Would I have done that? And sure enough, I did that. So it's, it's, <laughs> you, you forgot the drugs, I the forgot the stories. decoy. <laughs> it, it, it happens. And I think, uh, you know, it just proves that we're human and uh, some things, uh, they've always worked out pretty well for me i can't think of a case that went sour because of something that i forgot to do or didn't do you got any of those when i was a trainee <laughs> once i was working i was getting toward the end of my training so i was working uh, uh our, our our fdo process uh every month you spend in a different part of the state working with a different warden and and i was working this warden's days off and, and it was up in the northwest on lake champlain and i checked a couple of guys fishing underneath the bridge and they had uh two walleye on a stringer and I'd forgotten the, the law book 
and they, they, you know, so when with fishing, there's so many different regulations, especially mm -hmm. on different bodies of water. And I would always, always have this book back then. It was a small one. It would fit right in your pocket. Mm -hmm. And I, and as soon as I saw those walleye and I felt my back pocket and it wasn't there, I, I knew that, that, that I was going to have a problem. So I, I, I measured them and, and, uh, I thought they might be illegal. And what I should have done was taken them back to the truck and, and to measure them. But I was, I was too green. So I said, Oh, looks good. Have a, have a nice day. Uh, see you later. And I went back to the truck and I went flipping through the book and I'm like, Oh crap, they are illegal. They're, they're, they're too short. And, uh, or maybe they were in a, in the slot limit. So I go running back to them and I'm like, Hey, I need to take another look at those, at those walleye. And the guy looks at me and he says, Whoa. Well, we're just doing catch and release. He yeah. Goes, well, well, like. Of course, as soon as, as soon as, as soon as I left, he let he let him go. Yeah. So <laughs> I was like, all right, have, have a nice day. <laughs> yeah. there's, a, there's a couple. There's probably a couple more stories like that over the years. Oh, uh, that's, you, you, that's, you, you make mistakes. They, yeah, but sometimes yeah. those are the best stories too. Almost memorable. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. I. Uh, I get you. That. That's. That. That's great. But I used to do the same thing with duck identification. I worked, when I worked out west as a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Refuge officer, the ducks you would get, and I, you know, sometimes I'd have to take them up to the truck and go through the book just to to identify them. Mm -hmm. Oh, and 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 phase those out. But it, it's hard knowing all the game laws, especially like you said, they they change constantly. And to keep up with them, uh, the best thing they ever did is the new rules for like 2020 in the law books. Even for game wardens, I, I flip to those and I'm like, new laws. Okay, those are the ones that have changed because we are always in flux, whether it's for the benefit of the wildlife, benefit for, fit for the harvest, or, or, or how we're managing it. The things are always in flux, especially when it comes to bodies of water with fish. If they're managing every body of water by the fish species, there are different rules because it needs different management. And that's the foundation of, of rules. It's, it's, so it's not for us to catch people. It's uh, to, to actually have a good, good, healthy populations of wildlife. Criminal cases, we talked about wildlife cases. Any high-profile cases in your career, Dennis? Well, the, of course, the uh, high-related shooting incidents are always high-profile, especially if, if they're fatal. You know, it's certain, maybe the most important job, you know, task that, that a warden has in his job are, are investigating those cases. I think they're never fun. They might, there might be interesting technical aspects to it, but uh, there's always uh, kind of a cloud over the, over the whole investigation because uh, you know, you know what the end result is already. Mm. We had a, uh, a fatal deer hunting incident in Peachum. Uh, quite a few years ago where, where one uh, couple guys were deer hunting together. They came in separate vehicles, but uh, uh, they went and hunted in the evening. And one, the shooter in the case, there it was a large area with some very big fields, and he saw his partner's truck lights go on and st saw it start up and uh, apparently made the assumption that he had walked back to the truck. And, and the shooter was, was out late. He was... He was about five minutes or so, as I recall, beyond shooting hours. And as he was walking across the field, he saw what he claimed was a coyote. Now, when we rec we recreate recreated the uh, the scene and with the same light at the same time through a, a four power scope, which is what his was on, and it didn't look like a coyote, but a, a man looking straight at you or turned turned sideways actually from his perspective looked just like a doe deer. Oddly enough. I mean, it, it looked exactly like, of course, it was all gray and there was no hunter orange. From about 100 yards, between 99 and 100 yards, he shot his buddy and he died. A, a game warden, everybody knows who a game warden is in their area and the game warden knows uh, uh, many of the people, especially in a rural area like the Northeast Kingdom. You know, you, you know everybody involved. That kind of investigation, everything is over. All the evidence is there. But the effort and time that you put into that for the family's sake puts a lot of other investigations, uh, make, makes them look uh, almost minuscule. I mean, that was a greater than a, I mean, the investigation kind of was extended out over a year, but the, the meat of the investigation was over a month, with, really with several wardens recreating the scene. There was, unfortunately, there was a second round that was fired that uh, we don't know the reason for that. 
you know, you spend a lot of time looking for that second bullet. We did find one bullet in the field. Those are always, always high profile and uh, always sad, unfortunately. That the, <laughs> the, the, same, the same guy that we charged with the 16 counts, uh, we charged with 26 counts uh, seven years later. Received a report that he and his sons had been hunting during the youth season on property across the road from his house, private property without permission. And uh, the youth seasons are the only seasons that permission is legally required in Vermont. And so Dave Gregory and I went up there in the evening to see if uh, they'd ki- we knew that they had reported a, a deer that morning. So we went up there later in the afternoon to see if we could find any blood or any evidence of them having killed a deer there. And it was starting to get toward dusk, and we decided it might be smarter to uh, just stay stationary rather than start walking around an area that they might be hunting in. And uh, we did. And just after dark, we heard an ATV start up a couple hundred yards to the woods, and we could see the lights, hear somebody yelling. Familiar enough with these folks now that could even recognize the voice. The ATV started up and kind of headed down through the woods toward their house, and then it made a turn on a trail, and it started coming up the hill right toward Dave and I, and we're in these mature open hardwoods with, with no cover. And so we were scrambling to, uh, <laughs> to get off this trail and, and there's almost no ground vegetation. And we got about maybe 20 yards off the trail. And fortunately the land just gradually uh, sloped off, but, uh, and there was a little bit, I think Dave had his, his red wool jacket on, I'm not sure what I was wearing. I don't think I had orange on, but we got as low to the ground as we could. And they were, as, as they came up the hill, they turned the spotlight on. So the sun was riding on back and uh, he was running the spotlight all through the oaks uh, looking for deer. And they ran that spotlight right over the top of us. In fact, I remember because I was looking toward Dave with my head on the, on as close to the ground as I could get it. My face, my cheek right on the ground. And I could see how it, it made his wool jacket light up. And I thought, there's no way that they're not going to see it. But I guess there was just enough between us and them, and they didn't notice. And we could hear them talking as they drove up through, turned around and came back came back down through. And we could see a little bit. It was it gotten dark by then, but you could see sort of some shapes on the ATV. And it looked like there was something, a, a big lump of something on back. And when we got out to the trail, found blo- fresh blood in the trail. And so they had a deer on the back of the ATV at the time and went down to the house. And, and so that resulted in a, a search warrant again, based upon the information seven years later that this guy records everything. We were able to include that on the search warrant again, and uh, we got a lot of video. And so instead of just dealing with a youth day violation, we charged him with 26 counts, uh, taking deer in close season, uh, you name it, uh, all sorts sorts of violations and uh, so he he hadn't hadn't changed his his ways at all uh we had his son who i think was 16 maybe at the time roughly 17 maybe uh shooting a bear over bait from the stand dad and all three three sons would would be in the stand and and uh he'd be filming kids drinking drinking beer you know from from the titty stand so you know it was it, it made for a very interesting case you know, that was relatively high profile. And we had, uh, sometimes they don't end up in the court system the way you think they're going to. And, and at first, you're, everybody is very excited, including the prosecutors with all the motions. By the time they get drawn out over the course of a year and a half, I think a lot of the people involved are starting to lose their motivation for it. He did plead out, but he pled out to uh, quite a, a much reduced uh, number of charges. Uh, I think it was into the single digits. Mm. Yeah. And then we saw him again three falls ago. Deputy and I put out a, a deer. Wasn't even typically where lots of times wardens are targeting some, somebody uh, when they put out a, a deer at night. They've got some intel. They have some information. In this case, we had just helped a, a hunter uh, in the archery season track down a bear that he had shot. So we helped him. So we were a little late getting out to where we wanted to go and we're on the opposite side of the district. And, and uh, I said, you know, let's, let's just put it out in this field. We've had great luck here in the past. We actually had somebody run it over with their vehicle once in this field. It'd been quite a few years and I figured it had cooled off a little bit. We hadn't worked it and we weren't there for, I don't know, half hour, 45 minutes and a car went by slowly. 
and they slowed down by the decoy, but they didn't stop. And they went up the road about half a mile, turned around, came back down through. We could tell it was the same car. I uh, thought it was a Chrysler. I thought it was either Dodge or a Chrysler. It turned out to be a Chrysler Sebring convertible. <laughs> and now it was going quite a bit faster. And it was quite, it was like 50 degrees out that night. It was cool. Instead of creeping down through it, it was moving right along, but then it just stopped dead in its tracks right in front of the decoy. Light came on, heard the bow go. When the light came on, the spotlight, I noticed the uh, the driver who the deer, the deer was on the driver's side. My deputy and I were on the opposite side of the road. So we're looking at the passenger side of the vehicle. When the light came on, it, it illuminated the back of the head of the driver, which told me that the front passenger was the one running the spotlight. Well, it became important because they took off. Of course, the deer didn't run and uh, we took off after them and it was a short pursuit. It was only about a mile, but it was fast. The road uh, at one point narrowed into a one lane covered bridge. I, I was surprised when they stopped, but as soon as I stopped and the top was down, I looked and here it was same guy and all three sons and his 16 year old son was driving the car. His son that from previous cases, the oldest was now about 20. He was sitting uh, in the back right seat, 13 or so year old was in the back left seat. So it was, it was certainly a family affair. <laughs> uh, they, they had thrown the, the bow they had thrown a, a range finder. We, uh, we found that stuff. Actually, uh, Sergeant Simonowski had a training work with him the next morning. He was able to locate the bow in the range finder. Uh, we made him walk, of course. We towed, towed the vehicle. And what was interesting was the, uh, the son would have had to get up to shoot over, over his brother's head. And, and right on his seat were two very dusty boot prints just as perfect as can be so i think he was either standing or sitting up on the back of the of the car with his feet on the seat the best part about it was of course we called in the pursuit uh shortly after they stopped a trooper arrived to back us up but he came in from the front uh, the other way on the road so he parked in front of their car and he walked up to me and he said what's the deal with the fish and wildlife emblem and i, I didn't know what he was talking about he says come here and he brings me around to the front of their car. They had somewhere gotten their hands on one of our Fish and Wildlife Department magnets, like off a biologist car. It's very similar to the Game Warden uh, emblem. just doesn't say Game Warden. And they'd put that on the front of the car before they went out jacking. <laughs> just a, a little bit of icing on the cake for us. You know, it really went to show their uh, predisposition to poaching for sure. Yeah, and that was probably the first convertible that you ever had to seize due to the poaching, huh? Yeah, it, it was definitely the first convertible, first and only. Yeah, we're talking, you know, October, November with a convertible down? Uh, October. Yeah, October. It was about 50 degrees. It, yeah. was, it was chilly that night. <laughs> but they, they were out to kill a deer. They but, had a bloody arrow in the car uh, with them. But yeah. So. Yeah, so that was, that was sweet. That was my last fall. I was I was wasn't sure if we'd see him again, but I I had you know you, you catch word about some things that are going on. So he was he was starting to pop up on the radar again, and uh, I wasn't uh, completely surprised that that it was him. Was pleased that that was uh, my last interaction with him. Uh, this this family followed you through your whole career. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I. I, I, I it, they seem to think I was following them. But the reality <laughs> is, game wardens don't have time to babysit people. But yeah. I, I swear they must have thought that we were sitting in the bushes across from their house all the time. And they were they're they're very terroristic in their in their their ways. You know, they they've terrorized neighbors and and others. And uh, even me, when I would drive by their house, Dad would run in and, and grab an AK forty seven and and run out and empty out his 30 round magazine to try and intimidate me every time I'd, I'd drive by or, or uh, he would film once, once he had a, uh, a cell phone with a camera on it. Uh, if he saw you in public or at a drive by a swimming hole, he would uh, have the camera out in front and, and uh, be sure to say something, you know, very friendly, like, how you doing? How's it going, Dennis? Or if I had a training with him, Hey fellas, how's it going? But behind the camera, he'd be, given what my deputy called the California howdy, you know, so he'd be flipping us the bird as he's recording what, what would appear to be a, a, a nice conversation. So, you know, you don't know how that kind of brain works, but like it, it was never about hunting for him. It was always about killing and 
showing off his 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 kills in front of his house and i don't know why they couldn't do it legally yeah yeah but that's the reason we're out there families just like that and it sounds like he's uh training future poachers so i think the next generation of game warden your replacement uh is going to be dealing with the same same type of things of the same family and it's just it's it's interesting that that's because that was handed on years and years and years ago and i think we're getting less of poaching handed down but it was, that was traditionally how poachers, we had whole families that were renowned poachers in the Northeast, and I'm sure everywhere, because it was a family tradition, and the, the patriarchs taught the younger ones coming up, and these poaching families developed and continued on and be multiplied, and you know. but I think in today's society, they're, they're actually reducing because they're not engaging as much. Although I think there's some out there that are training themselves to be poachers as well. That's, uh, I think so, and I think it, you know it. It would it makes sense that it would follow with the lack of uh, or the reduced interest in, in hunting. Uh, mm. You know, there's fewer and fewer hunters, and, and you're going to have fewer and fewer poachers. But uh, definitely a familial thing. I can think of a family on on your side of the river that frequented our side quite a bit, and, mm-hmm. and uh, for them it was a familial thing they actually have a, a a close relative in law enforcement now and i i think that may have uh that relationship might have helped to temper their 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 activity hopefully yeah and, and sometimes that does you know my uncles weren't beyond uh reproach and i remember one uncle saying that you know i would never embarrass you wayne by by doing that anymore <laughs> And so I guess in that, that aspect, that's kind of good. Some of that good influence comes from that. But the stories when they were younger are many. <laughs> Whether it was, you know, collecting salmon or, you know, hunting on posted property and, and things like that right down to uh, night hunting. <laughs> you know, I, I've, some of it's in our roots as well. And uh, yeah, to, to hear those stories growing up as a kid, it just, just kind of cracks me up. I got a great story about my uncle warren who came to respect uh game wardens a whole lot and he, and he had a lot of respect for game wardens even when he was poaching because he was on the first name basis with the local game warden so <laughs> but i think he, he still had respect for him which was pretty good and then when i became a game warden even more so he was very proud i'd call him yeah he, he kind of cheated <laughs> more so when he was younger than when he was older but uh it, you know those, those good influences can make a difference you know what, I, I, I like what you said, Dennis, that we know our community. Game wardens are the ultimate community policing. So, and I guess in this day and age, I want to drive that home so much on these podcasts. Is, And I didn't get it as a young game warden because I was out to catch poachers, and my lieutenant wanted me to build a rapport with my community. He always wanted for me to know my local store owners, know my local farmers, stop in, have a cup of coffee. And I kept thinking, I don't have time for that because I'm a game warden. I got to go catch some poachers. But what he was doing is instilling that. And I got more information out of those people that I became friends with than I ever did from Operation Game Thief because I developed my own Operation Game Thief. And that's what he wanted. He wanted me to become a part of the community and, you know, and then have those questions when people called and yeah, I think uh, game wardens are the ultimate um, community policing, don't you think? Yeah, and I think there's, I think just due to the nature of the activities that we that we police, and and the fact that most game wardens are outdoors folks to begin with, uh, you can relate even with the offenders. The fellow I was just talking about, in between these episodes, there were times where I've sat down at his neighbor's house having a coffee with him at the table. It's, it's a different kind of relationship than a lot of law enforcement often experiences. The first name basis. I mean, mm-hmm. most most of these folks uh, don't call you Warden Amston. They, they, it's Dennis. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it's good, whether it's bad, you can be in court and they're testifying and they can say, "Well, well, Dennis came to our house," and and you know, it's a first it's a first name basis. You don't you know you don't see that in a lot of other crimes and. In traditional policing, uh, except for in some of the small small towns, of course, but mm. uh, there are so few game wardens that everybody knows you by your first name. Absolutely, I think that's a good thing, and I, I like that. And I think you're right. Uh, that I've had coffee 
at some of the poachers' houses as well, and uh, it's almost like the sheepdog and the coyote type thing. And a lot of those guys, when caught, just pay their fines because they know that, that you caught them. You got me. So uh, yeah, and if you treat them fairly, they they know if they're being treated. There are some people that are will not be happy no matter what, but most people, uh, when treated fairly, uh, respond a similar manner. Yeah, but I have the, I have the respect for the guys that say you got me. You know, uh, absolutely. I, the guy I see around town, I, I, I got, I went to his door and told him why we were there for illegal bait, bear baiting, had him on camera and everything. And you got, he answered the door. He looked at me and he says, you got me. <laughs> That's how we started it. Oh, <laughs> well, where the other person involved, uh, you know, you show him the, it, it just took those pictures to say, cause he was not guilty, not guilty, not guilty until he saw the photo evidence and he wanted to know where we got that. So, but I, I have so much respect for that guy. You got me, you know, and today I just have the, the most respect for him. I always, whenever I see him, I want to make sure I say hi because yeah, he had enough respect for me and enough respect for the wildlife that, yeah, I, I, I played the edge. I knew I was doing wrong, but you got me and we're on a first name basis. So if Leo ever listens to this podcast, uh, I think a lot of him just, just for those reasons, you know, as, as police officers, when people tell you, the truth, it's kind of shocking at times. <laughs> well, and, and when you have those experiences with, with someone like that, it speaks very well to the other game wardens that they have had exposure to. Because mm-hmm. uh, if they had had uh, uh, terrible experiences with game wardens, your experience might have been very, very different. You know, we have a, such a rich heritage of this community policing that that I think game wardens started before, be, long before the term ever ever came out that we get to ride on those coattails and we get to enjoy Mm -hmm. that as long as we don't screw it up yes i agree i agree and i'm glad i learned from my predecessors too that passed on that didn't quite understand when it was being passed on what they were doing but now i look back and it was actually i was building my community policing i was building my own operation game thief i i I benefited from that as you did and you know i hope the new game wardens that listen to this understand it the supervisors you know in today's day and age you know there's so much going on we got to take time to know our local farmer to know the local guy that runs the store to uh you know even in in the cities or everything else is game wardens everywhere you know to, to know your community and to to be a part of it yeah absolutely well, anything in closing dennis i mean i always say this is uh, your podcast as much as my podcast uh, you know for me uh, your your last day you turn your almost your last day you turned in your stuff today it's just it's a great day to do a podcast uh, just to your achievements and yeah your dedication and the work you've done as a game warden i appreciate it i know my listeners appreciate it uh everything you've done and uh yeah, Warden's Watch is uh, for every game warden out there, every wildlife enforcement officer, and even some of those on the curtails of it. No, it's, it's, I, I just, I feel blessed. I, I'm a rich man for having the experience. Uh, no game warden does it on his own. It's only because of, of other game wardens, learning from other game wardens. I've learned from uh, biologists uh, that, that uh, I told somebody recently that, that, um, they're the ones that taught me that fish and wildlife law enforcement isn't all tickets and, and handcuffs. I've learned from the public. Without the public, a game warden is it's an uphill battle to, to uh, make cases to begin with. But without the public support, a game warden would be absolutely lost. But especially uh, uh, the game warden's family, you know, they are the uh, they're the ones that create the foundation the, that allows a game warden to go and and do the job, you know, and they are affected. Uh, my wife is the non paid employee of the state for the last 20 years. You know, every time I was woken up at 3 AM, she was woken up at 3 AM. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's had people come to the house looking for me, not, not to say hello either, or hit her up in the store or, or your kids. I mean, they're, everybody knows who their, who their, dad is or mom is that's the game warden's kid and they pay a price for that too but there's there's the plus side you know there's a lot of benefits to this job and and the relationships that you make through training through working cases across state lines and you guys in new hampshire were were over here quite a lot we came over to help with uh recoveries and search and rescues over there and you you train 
go to trainings across the country and meet wardens everywhere. And if you're a game warden, you can go anywhere and you have contacts. Uh, you have somebody for some help or place to stay or some tips for hunting. It's definitely not a job. There were days it felt like a job, but they were far and few between. Mm. Yep. If you do something you love, you never, never work a day in your life. That's what, that's what I've heard. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I appreciate the podcast and, uh, yeah, good luck with, uh, your future endeavors, Dennis. Thank you. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures, protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from Game Wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves Game Wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch.